were the Tudors? It's a good question. They are, of course, the most famous royal dynasty in all of British history, and yet their path to the throne was not smooth, nor was it in any way expected. The Tudors were upstarts in almost every sense of the word, and that King Henry VII even managed to claim the throne following his defeat of King Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth was nothing short of miraculous. As the great-great-grandson of John of Gaunt, fourth son of King Edward III via his mistress and later wife, Catherine Swinford, Henry Tudor did have a tincture of royal blood running in his veins, but he and his family faced a couple of problems, and they weren't small. Firstly, that drop of royal blood circulating around him was damned twice over, for being both via an illegitimate relationship, for Henry's great-grandfather had been born out of wedlock, and that it passed through the female line, a technicality which made his bloodline all the more undesirable. Moreover, although Henry's mother's ancestors, the Beauforts, were later legitimised by King Richard II, at the same time it was made clear that they were barred from inheriting the throne. In short, as Tracy Borman Riley observes, the Tudors had no business being on the throne of England at all, and yet they did eventually sit on the throne held it for over 100 years, and became, probably, the most well-recognised historical figures in Britain's long and rich history. So who actually were the earlier Tudors? Where did they come from? Just how did they end up mixing with the Lancastrian branch of the House of Plantagenet, and what justification enabled them to ultimately succeed in placing themselves on the throne? to the Tudor Chest Podcast, episode 28. Who were the Tudors? The House of Tudor is one which should never have been, or at least should never have risen as high as they eventually did. Unlike the kings from the house that they usurped, the Plantagenets, the Tudors came to the throne without spectacularly grand titles and were ultimately a tiny family, a man and his mother, Henry Tudor and Margaret Beaufort, whose sole claim to grandeur was via their descent from King Edward III. The problem, however, is that practically the entire nobility descended from Edward III in one way or another, and as such, for the early years of Tudor rule, there was the awkward reality that several members of the York dynasty, the family that the Tudors had overthrown, remained very much alive and boasted supremely greater claims to the throne. There was also the undeniable fact that the Yorkists were a more appealing bunch. We now know, thanks to the discovery of his remains in 2012, that Richard III did have his own major physical struggles, but his direct predecessor and elder brother, King Edward IV, everything the ideal 15th century king should be. He was lusty, strong and affable, boasting the quintessential Yorkist good looks and an endearing personality. This was a king who was, to use modern parlance, a bit of a hunk, the kind of guy that you could get behind, who claps you on the back and enjoys a laugh, definitely the sort of guy who'd get the first round in at the pub. Henry Tudor was, well, 
By contrast, the polar opposite. He was slight of frame, he was described as being quite cool and aloof, he had quite a notable squint, and in the early days of his reign, he preferred to converse in French rather than English. This and his own highly questionable right to the throne adds up to Henry Tudor being a less than conducive choice to be England's king. And yet despite all of this, he managed to claim the throne of England. So where exactly did this lineage come from? Henry Tudor's ties to the royal family were twofold, via both his mother and his father, but neither were much on paper, especially when compared to other much more senior members of the nobility of the time. The period known to us as the Wars of the Roses was, at its crux, a battle between the two dominant lines of the nobility who traced their descent from Edward III. All of the dramas, the battles and the bloodshed have Edward III as their starting point, even though the man himself was long dead by the time that his descendants started hacking each other apart. Edward III had many children, but for the purposes of this episode I am concentrating on the ones whose descendants became kings of England, these being his eldest son, Edward of Woodstock, known to history as the Black Prince, supposedly for his perchance for wearing black armour in battle, his second son, Lionel, Duke of Clarence, and lastly his fourth son, John, Duke of Lancaster, known more commonly as John of Gaunt. Edward the Black Prince predeceased his father by a year, which meant that when Edward III did die, his throne went to his grandson, Richard, who became King Richard II. Considered by many to be one of the most disastrous kings to ever sit on the throne of England, Richard II was eventually deposed by his cousin, Henry, known as Henry Bolingbroke, who was the eldest son of John of Gaunt. Until this point, the throne had mostly passed in an unbroken line with the king only succeeding to the throne when its predecessor died. The accession of Henry Bolingbroke as Henry IV changed all of that. This was a moment when the nobility essentially got together and decided that the king needed to be replaced with someone more capable, which Henry IV, by and large, succeeded in. It did, however, mean that a king who was ostensibly still capable of rule, physically speaking, for Richard II was just 32 at the time of his removal as king and was both fit and healthy, was then shunted aside, created a dangerous precedent. It effectively made clear that if the king was deemed unfit for office, then why not take him off the throne and let someone else have a go? This is certainly trite and is massively simplifying things, but the removal of Richard II to be replaced by Henry IV had massive repercussions that effectively underpinned the entire Wars of the Roses. Although officially still a Plantagenet king, Henry IV was the first of what we would now recognise as the kings from the House of Lancaster. Henry IV would have a son, who became Henry V, who in turn had a son, who became Henry VI. Based on strict primogeniture, and by that I mean the inclusion of all descendants of Edward III, including daughters and granddaughters, then Henry IV should never have ascended the throne as the replacement for Richard II. Firstly, because his own father, John of Gaunt, was alive and well, and thus had a greater claim to the throne, but more significantly, he had cousins born from his father's older siblings, who, if we followed the rules of primogeniture, were ahead of him in the line of succession. And that is an important thing to keep in mind, for it totally defines the later claims to the throne that were put forward by the House of York. What ultimately gave favour to Henry IV at this specific time, though, was a biggie. 
He was a man, and moreover, he was a grown man, with lots of experience in war, and these facts counted for a great deal more in 1399 than they would do now. He was, in effect, the best man for the job, or I suppose I should say, the only man who stood a chance of actually succeeding. So how did the Tudors come into this? Henry IV was, as I've mentioned, the eldest son of John of Gaunt, but he had several younger half-siblings born to his father and his father's mistress, Catherine Swinford. His eldest half-brother was John Beaufort, Earl of Somerset, who had a son, also called John, they weren't very original back then, who inherited his father's title, but this became elevated into a dukedom, becoming the first Duke of Somerset. The Duke of Somerset had only one child, a daughter, Margaret, who we now know as Lady Margaret Beaufort, the mother of King Henry VII. Margaret Beaufort was thus a great-niece of King Henry IV, a first cousin, once removed, of Henry V, and a second cousin of Henry VI. As the sole child born to her father, a duke with direct descent from Edward III, Margaret Beaufort was one of the richest heiresses in England following her father's death, which happened when Margaret was less than a year old. As I said a moment ago, Margaret's ancestors were via John of Gaunt's mistress, Catherine Swinford, and as such, had been born out of wedlock. Although they were legitimised by Richard II when Henry IV took the throne, he declared that the Beaufort line of descent would be barred from inheriting his throne. And it is this fact that makes the Tudor claim to the throne so tenuous, because it had been made clear that the line in which they were born could not inherit. So how did the name of Tudor actually first come into the mix? Well, for that, we need to look once more at John of Gaunt's line. His grandson was King Henry V, who was married to the French princess Catherine of Valois, a daughter of King Charles VI of France. By Henry V, Catherine had just one child, a son, also called Henry, who became king at the age of just nine months when his legendary father, the victor at the Battle of Agincourt, died quite unexpectedly at the age of just 35. He never met his infant son, and so Henry VI grew up without a father figure, which I think we can safely say did irreparable damage in his ability to govern England and its many overseas territories successfully. Henry V and Catherine of Valois had only been married for two years at the time of Henry V's death, and as Catherine was 15 years her husband's junior, she was also very young to be widowed, having not reached her 21st birthday when her husband died. She was thus still of marriageable age, which was a major cause of concern to her brother-in-law, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, the guardian of her young son. Rumours abounded that Catherine planned to marry Edmund Beaufort, Count of Mortain, her late husband's cousin. The Duke of Gloucester was strongly against the match, however, and the Parliament of 1427 passed a bill which set forth the provision that if the Queen Dowager remarried without the King's consent, her husband would forfeit his lands and possessions, although any children of the marriage would not suffer punishment. The king's consent was contingent upon his having attained his majority. At that time, Henry VI was just six years old. Catherine lived in the king's household, presumably so that she could take care of her young son, but the arrangement also enabled the councillors to watch over the queen dowager directly. Nevertheless, Catherine did eventually enter into a sexual relationship with a Welshman, Owen Tudor, who in 1421, in France, had been in the service of Henry V's steward, Sir Walter Hungerford. Owen Tudor was probably appointed keeper of Catherine's household or wardrobe, which is how the two met. 
Given the colossal difference in their status, the union was bound to cause major upset at court. The relationship began when Catherine lived at Windsor Castle, which is also where she became pregnant with their first child. At some point she stopped living in the king's household, and in May 1432, Parliament granted Owen Tudor the rights of an Englishman. And this was an important distinction, because Henry IV's laws limited the rights of native Welshmen. There is no known date of Catherine's marriage to Owen, which calls into question whether it ever happened. However, given that the children born from the union never had their legitimacy questioned, then we can conclude that Owen and Catherine did marry and that the specifics of when and where are sadly lost to time. By Owen Tudor, Catherine would give birth four times, to three sons, Edmund, Jasper and Edward, and also to a daughter for whom we sadly have no name. The two younger siblings died young, but Edmund and Jasper reached adulthood. In 1455, Edmund, aged 25, married the heiress Margaret Beaufort, who was just 12 at the time of their marriage. Shockingly, he soon bedded his infant bride and she fell pregnant, giving birth to their son, Henry, at the age of just 13. Even for the time, this was considered a shocking act and likely did lifelong damage to Margaret Beaufort's body. She was always petite and the trauma of carrying a child so early in her own life would have put enormous strain on her body, perhaps explaining why despite two further marriages she never produced another child and may have suffered a lifelong fear of sex, for she also made it clear to her final husband that their relationship would not be sexual. As Edmund Tudor's mother was Catherine of Valois, he was a half-brother of King Henry VI, making Margaret Beaufort a half-niece of the king. It is this fact that makes Henry VII's link to Henry VI twofold, via his mother's ancestors and via his paternal grandfather's marriage to Catherine of Valois. The Tudors were thus born from two Beaufort lines. I hope you are keeping up. So, who was Owen Tudor, Henry VII's grandfather, and what happened to him? Given his relatively humble birth, little is known about Owen Tudor's early life, and the gaps in knowledge have naturally led to spurious rumours or theories cropping up. For example, there have been some claims that he was the illegitimate son of an alehouse keeper, that his father was a fugitive murderer, and that his relationship with Catherine of Valois began when he fell into the Queen's lap whilst dancing which perhaps owes its origin in what Owen Tudor would say shortly before his death. More on that later. It is true that Owen's own family held no dukes or earls in its ranks, but they were not complete nobodies and had some prominent forebears in their native Wales. A quick warning for any Welsh listeners out there, please forgive me now if I butcher these pronunciations. Owen Tudor's grandfather, Tudor ap Gorini, I think that's how I'm saying it and I apologise again, married Margaret, daughter of Thomas ap Llewellyn ap Owen of Cardiganshire, the last male of the senior branch of the princely house of Dehe Bath. Historians have actually concluded that the family from which Owen Tudor descended were among the most powerful in 13th and 14th century Wales and were, in all but name, the Welsh equivalent of an aristocracy. Unlike Scotland, which had centuries-long strife with England, the Welsh were able to carve out a position of some level of autonomy with the English kings. Owen Tudor's ancestors acted as leading servants to the princes of Gwynedd and would play a key role in the attempts to create a single Welsh principality. 
this privilege endured after the conquest of Wales by Edward I, with his family continuing to exercise power in the name of the King of England within Wales. And so whilst Henry VII's Tudor blood was far from being considered particularly grand in England, his father's forebears, who carried the Tudor name, were not exactly total nobodies. Whilst his wife remained alive, Owen Tudor's safety was all but assured. Catherine of Valois' decision to marry Owen Tudor was certainly unorthodox, but that could not remove the fact that she was the daughter of the French king, the widow of an English king, and the mother to the present king, and this gave her and her second husband an immovable measure of protection, and in turn gave Owen Tudor a huge douse of political safety. This all changed the moment Catherine of Valois breathed her last, which occurred on the 3rd of February 1437. She died at the age of just 35, the same age as her first husband, Henry V. With his wife's death, Owen Tudor lost a great deal of the protection that he enjoyed by virtue of his marriage. He was duly imprisoned in Newgate Prison for the crime of seducing the mother of the king. In 1438, he escaped, but was later recaptured and held in the custody of the Constable of Windsor Castle. He did not have to wait long for restoration, however, for just a year later, in 1439, Henry VI granted him a general pardon, restoring his goods and lands. In addition, Henry VI granted him a pension of £40 per annum, provided him with a position at court, and appointed to him the keeper of the King's Parks in Denby. In 1442, Henry VI welcomed his two half-brothers, Edmund and Jasper, to court, and a decade later, in November 1452, they were created the Earls of Richmond and Pembroke, respectively, with the acknowledgement that they were the king's half-brothers. It was clear for all to see that their position as the scions of his mother's clandestine marriage to the lowly Owen Tudor mattered little to Henry VI, and that he would do what he could to support his two half-brothers. They would, in turn, show unwavering loyalty to their half-brother and the interests of the House of Lancaster, which would be tested to the extreme within a few short years. Following the loss of the English-held French territory of Gascony to the French king in the summer of 1453, Henry VI suffered a complete mental breakdown which lasted over 17 months. He entered a catatonic state and had to be aided in every aspect of life, be it feeding, going to the toilet, and so on. You get the gist. During this period, Henry VI's wife, the bold and brilliant Margaret of Anjou, demanded to be declared regent. However, the Tudor brothers, Edmund and Jasper, supported Richard, Duke of York, who sought to become protector of the realm. Richard, Duke of York, was another direct descendant of Edward III, via his second son, Lionel, Duke of Clarence. If we accept the rules of primogeniture, then the Duke of York was actually the senior choice to wear the crown of England over his cousin Henry VI, and until Henry VI had an heir, the Duke of York was seen by many as his natural successor. However, unlike Henry VI, the Duke of York's descent came via the female line, for Lionel of Clarence had had no sons, and so whilst it was senior in terms of age, it was, to the nobility of the time, less desirable than the offspring of a male line. Henry VI miraculously recovered from his stupor on Christmas Day 1454 and immediately dismissed the Duke of York as protector of England. This left the Tudor brothers in something of a bind. 
They were Lancastrians by birth, but had sided with the House of York in the moment that England so desperately needed firm and experienced guidance to ensure the country could actually run. Edmund Tudor was not present for the First Battle of St Albans on the 22nd of May 1455, which is generally agreed as being the start of the Wars of the Roses, and would lead to King Henry VI being captured by Richard, Duke of York. Both brothers attended the following Parliament, where York was once again named Protector. While York cancelled the majority of the grants that Henry had made during his reign, those to Edmund and Jasper were exempt. Following his loss of power and favour, the Duke of York took up arms against the House of Lancaster, which would be the start of what we now call the Wars of the Roses, although it was actually called the Cousins' War at the time. Owen Tudor was an early casualty of the conflict, when he joined his son Jasper's army in Wales in January 1461, a force that was defeated at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross by Edward Earl of March, the eldest son of the Duke of York and the future King Edward IV. On the 2nd of February, Owen Tudor was captured and beheaded in Hereford. He was not expecting execution, but instead believed that he would be imprisoned. When informed that he would be beheaded, he showed remarkable strength of character and was able to spot the irony in his impending death, commenting that, This head shall lie on the stock that was wont to lie on Queen Catherine's lap. This is a callback to the legend that his first meeting with Catherine occurred when he fell and landed in her lap. His body was buried in a chapel in the north side of the Greyfriars Church in Hereford. He had no memorial until his illegitimate son, David, paid for a tomb before the friary was dissolved. Just a month after Owen Tudor's execution, Henry VI was successfully deposed and Edward Earl of March, by rights of conquest, took the throne as King Edward IV. Given their close ties to the Lancastrians, what remained of the House of Tudor remained staunchly loyal to Henry VI. With Edmund Tudor having predeceased his father, it was left to Jasper Tudor, the Earl of Pembroke, to undertake the protection of both his late brother's widow, Margaret, and his young nephew, Henry. Such was Jasper's loyalty to Henry VI that when Edward IV successfully displaced him, Jasper Tudor felt the need to go into exile abroad. Pembroke Castle, the great fortress which was the seat of the Beauforts, and thus a massive part of Henry Tudor's planned inheritance, was taken away and handed to William Herbert, a staunch supporter of the Yorkist faction. The family title of Earl of Pembroke was also revoked and handed to Herbert, as was the guardianship of Margaret Beaufort and her young son. Henry Tudor lived in the Herbert household until 1469, when Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, known to history as the Kingmaker, went over to the Lancastrian cause following his massive fallout with Edward IV following Edward IV's decision to marry Elizabeth Woodville. Herbert was captured fighting for the Yorkists and executed by the Earl of Warwick. When Warwick restored Henry VI in 1470, Jasper Tudor returned from exile and brought Henry Tudor to court. Of course, this peace for the Lancastrians would not last, for within a few short months, Edward IV had regained the throne, necessitating a fleet of Brittany for Henry Tudor, who many now saw as the natural and obvious Lancastrian candidate around which they should support. Henry Tudor would spend most of the next 14 years under the protection of Francis II, Duke of Brittany. In November 1476, Francis fell ill and his principal advisers were more amenable to negotiating with King Edward IV. Henry Tudor was thus handed over to English envoys and escorted to the Breton port of Saint-Malo. 
While there, he feigned stomach cramps and delayed his departure long enough to miss the tides. An ally of Henry's, Viscount Jean du Kellenec, soon arrived, bringing news that Francis II had recovered from his illness, and in the confusion, Henry Tudor was able to flee to a monastery from where he could claim sanctuary. Back in England, the rule of Edward IV came to a rather abrupt end on the 9th of April 1483. The king, who was famed for his love of the good life, had caught a chill whilst out fishing and died shortly after at the age of 40. It was also around this time that Henry Tudor's mother was actively promoting him as an alternative to the House of York, in particular Sir Richard III, who had usurped order following his brother's death, taking the throne in place of his elder nephew, Edward shortly known as Edward V, and his brother Richard Duke of York, known as the Princes in the Tower. Margaret Beaufort had grown up under almost constant danger and uncertainty, and as such was a political animal through and through. Via secret negotiation with Edward IV's widow, Dowager Queen Elizabeth Woodville, she orchestrated a marriage alliance between her son and the York's greatest asset, Princess Elizabeth of York, the eldest child of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. At Wren Cathedral on Christmas Day 1483, Henry Tudor pledged to marry Elizabeth of York, who since her brother's disappearance was the York's heir presumptive. Without the support of the huge York family, the Tudors knew that their chances of successfully ruling England would be folly. With money and supplies borrowed from his host, Francis II, Henry Tudor tried to land in England, but his conspiracy unravelled, resulting in the execution of his primary co-conspirator, Henry Stafford, 2nd Duke of Buckingham. Now supported by Francis II's Prime Minister, Pierre Landais, Richard III attempted to extradite Henry from Brittany, but Henry escaped into France, where he was welcomed by the French, who readily supplied him with the troops and equipment for a second invasion. Henry devised a plan to seize the throne by engaging Richard quickly because Richard had reinforcements in Nottingham and Leicester. Though grossly outnumbered, Henry's Lancastrian forces decisively defeated Richard's Yorkist army at the Battle of Bosworth on the 22nd of August 1485. Several of Richard's key allies, such as Henry Percy, the 4th Earl of Northumberland, and also Lord Stanley and his brother William, crucially switched sides or left the battlefield. Richard III's death at Bosworth Field effectively ended the Wars of the Roses, and with it, the House of Plantagenet as England's ruling dynasty. From there, the House of Tudor as England's ruling dynasty had begun. The accession of the Tudors really was a watershed moment in history. Their ancestry had greatness in its ranks, but so many other claimants to the throne would continue to flit about the Tudor court throughout the 118 years that they were on the throne. The fact that the Tudors had taken the throne by conquest caused a natural sense of what we would now call imposter syndrome, and goes some way to explaining why Henry VIII in particular came down so heavily on those with strong royal blood in their veins, perhaps most significantly during the period known as the Exeter Conspiracy, which saw the destruction of some of the greatest nobles in England, including Margaret Poole, the Countess of Salisbury, a niece of Edward IV and Richard III, and Henry Courtenay, Marquess of Exeter, a grandson of Edward IV, via his daughter, Princess Catherine of York. We naturally focus on the flashier Tudors, Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, and their daughter Elizabeth. But what makes their dynasty so fascinating, I think, is that ultimately it's one that should never have been, and that it was only by chance, really, that the name of Tudor even came to prominence in England, 
when a young French princess and dowager Queen of England caught the eye of a lowly Welshman, from whom the dynasty, which remains England's most famous, the Tudors, would begin. And so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the episodes, then perhaps you would consider becoming an official patron of the channel via my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest. From just £5 a month, you can get access to all of the content I release, including my new series, Historian Unwrapped. You can also subscribe to my subscriber podcast episodes via Apple Podcasts. Thank you again for your support of the Tudor Chest, and speak soon. <laughs>